0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel Morwood entitled The Fire God Comes Seeking Fire. Recorded on The Light of Truth Day, 11th of August, 2019, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: Good morning everybody. We are not going to start this morning with meditation because we're going to do some meditation in the middle of uh, the meeting here. So we're going to jump right ahead. And we are here today particularly to celebrate uh, our one of our two main center holidays, and this is the Light of Truth Day. Uh, we are celebrating in the Light of Truth Day, one of the great directives of all mystical traditions is to seek truth. The other one, the other directive is to cultivate love and compassion. And in all mystical traditions, you'll find these two fundamental teachings are at the heart of the whole path, the whole spiritual path. It's often expressed as two wings of a bird. The bird can't fly without the two wings. So you need love and truth to fly. So we celebrate uh, cultivating love and compassion uh, in the winter in our Love uh, Light of Love Day on December 25th. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you get the other half of the, this great teaching then. I mean, you, you don't have to wait until then. You'll get it. <laughs> if You come to the center woven throughout our, our teachings. But if you want to uh, have a, a celebration of that, you have to wait until December 25th. So uh, what is this truth that mystics seek? And I thought I would uh, try to illustrate this with a story this morning, and then we can talk about that. Uh, This story comes from the Zen tradition. Actually, it comes from the Chan tradition. For those of you who don't know, Zen Buddhism is the Japanese version, the Japanese branch of a particular school of Buddhism that began in China uh, in the 6th century, more or less. Uh, And it was called Chan in China. And then when it moved to Japan, it became known as Zen. That's the Japanese name. And most Westerners know it by Zen. And so... Uh, I tend to always talk about Zen. But this particular story comes from the earlier Chan tradition. And it's a story about a Chan or Zen master. I'm not going to try to be technical here. A Zen master, Chinese Zen master named... Oh, I must, before I get into the story, I have one more thing to say. I I need to apologize to any Chinese speakers here because I read these names in books. I don't have an authentic Chinese speaker Friend or colleague, or that I can check with the pronunciations. Uh, I checked with Matt this morning about these, and uh, they're they're different than uh, I'm going to pronounce them. And it's too late for me to learn his pronunciation. And besides, his pronunciation isn't really completely authentic. It's not doesn't have the tones in it. So, uh, so I'm just going to be politically incorrect and butcher the names. And uh, and I apologize, uh, as I said, to Chinese any authentic Chinese speaker. So, the story concerns a uh, Zen master. He's head of a, a great monastery. And one day, he calls in one of his students. Uh, the Zen master is named Fayan. And he calls in one of his students, Zhuanzhu. And he asks him, how long have you been here? And Zhu says, three years, sir. And Fayan says, three years and all that time, you've never asked me about attaining enlightenment. And Zhuangzi Zhu says, well, I can't deceive you, sir, but when I was studying under Qing Feng, I attained enlightenment. Oh, uh, Fian says, how did that come about? Tell me about it. And Zhuang Zhu said, well, I asked Ching uh, Feng, uh, <laughs> what, what is the true nature of the self-seeking enlightenment? And Ching uh, Feng said, the fire god comes seeking fire. Now, let's stop right there. So what do you make of the story so far? What's it about? What's this answer that uh, Cheng Feng gave? Yes?
2: It's about the selflessness of attaining Buddhahood and how it's not something that you brag about.
1: Oh, well, that's an interesting interpretation. <laughs> okay. Uh, this, was a, this was not really bragging. This was the, uh, he wasn't. Uh,
2: Because he didn't tell his master for many years, therefore he was not bribed. It wasn't until his master asked upon him.
1: Right. Okay, good. Okay, I see what you're talking about. Yes, okay, that's a very good uh, uh, interpretation. Anybody else got one?
2: Seeking something that you already have.
1: So the the fire god is the uh, seeking fire means the self that's seeking enlightenment is enlightened. Okay, that sounds like a good answer. Anybody else got a different one? All right, let me go on with the story. So, uh, after Zhang uh, Zhu says this, Fayan says, well, that's a great teaching, but I don't think he understood it. And Zhang Zhu said, well, I took it to mean that the, the essence, the, the nature of the fire god is fire, so that the nature, the true nature of the self-seeking enlightenment is enlightenment. That's what you said. Fayan says, ah, I knew it. You don't understand it. gotcha (laughs) Zhuang Zhu is very upset by this don't be upset Mark (laughs) and he goes off in a huff but then he thinks about it he says you know Fayan's a renowned teacher he's got hundreds of students maybe there's something to what he says maybe I should go back so he goes back uh, and has another interview with Fayan and apologizes for getting upset and says "Uh, so uh, what is the true nature of the self-seeking enlightenment? And Fayan says, the fire god comes seeking fire. <laughs> and Zhuangzi's Zhu's mind suddenly opens and he attains full realization of the truth of Zen. Huh? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Come see me afterwards. <laughs> I got another test for you. years <laughs> So uh what's the difference I mean the difference between uh Zhuangzi's reaction to uh, the first time he heard this fire guy come seeking fire from uh Feng and the the time he heard it from Fayan
0: understanding it intellectually versus
1: experiencing Excellent excellent We tend to think we uh, that understanding is an intellectual thing. It's um, it's, uh, understanding a concept or an idea or uh, the truth comes... It's a statement about something. So that, for instance, uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a statement of mathematical truth. And you could prove it if you uh, accept certain axioms and then you can logically figure out that 2 plus 2 actually does equal 4. And if I say the sun is shining outside, well, that's a statement of... uh, factual or experiential truth, and you could prove that by going outside and looking around, and sure enough, the sun is shining. That's true. Or if I say uh, E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, that's a scientific truth. And I don't know how you'd prove it, but I'm sure there are ways that scientists can go about proving it, complicated ways. Tom could tell you afterwards if you're interested. Uh, <laughs> So these are this involves an intellectual understanding. These intellectual truths, and there's certainly a place for them in life. It's very important, but this is not what mystics are talking about. They're not talking about an intellectual understanding. So let me uh, uh, let me read you a couple of quotes here from what mystics do say. Oh my God! to need my glasses. I get my cataracts, and I don't need glasses. And then I get older, and then you do need glasses again. <laughs> No one. One damn thing after another. (laughs) Here's uh, Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu was the founder of Taoism. And he wrote this little book called the Tao Te Ching. And it's like 81 verses. And he starts it off by saying the Tao is their term for ultimate reality. Truth, ultimate reality. And he says, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the true Tao. Right away, right off the bat, he's warning you, all the 81 verses here do not contain the truth in terms of you can't read it and you come away and say, oh, I know the truth now. As the Buddhists like to say, the, the words are fingers pointing to the moon, but they are not the moon itself. And woe unto you if you get attached to the finger. Oh, oh look at that wonderful finger. Wow. It's actually, it's kind of an old finger here, a little crooked. but. No, the finger's just pointing to the moon. The finger's almost irrelevant. Uh, Here's the ancient Hindu Upanishads, and they're talking about Brahman, the uh, ultimate reality. He comes to the thought of of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who imagine he can be attained by thought. He is known in the ecstasy of an awakening, which opens the door of life eternal. So this ecstasy of an awakening, something that transcends the thinking mind. Here's Catherine of Genoa, she's a Christian mystic, of the medieval Christian mystic. He is above and beyond whatever may be felt or conceived. Such knowledge does not come through the intellect or will, as I have said. It comes from God with a rush. This is what happened to Zhuangzi the second time when he heard it from uh, that line from Fey'an. Suddenly his mind opened up. He got it. He didn't have to figure it out or think it out or whatever. Uh, and I think Zogen, uh, Dogen, another Zen master, Japanese Zen master, uh, sums this up wonderfully. He says, it is worth noticing that what you think, one way or another, is not a help for realization. Realization does not depend on thoughts, but comes forth from beyond them. Realization is helped only by the power of realization itself. So what you think about enlightenment is its just really irrelevant. Whether you think enlight- you believe in enlightenment or don't believe in enlightenment, or you think that enlightenment is uh, some sort of... Uh, uh, a transcendent experience, or you think thinking light must be very ordinary, it, that's all completely irrelevant. It's something to remember in your practice. Now, there is, you can make a practice out of trying to figure enlightenment out, and the practice is to exhaust that mind. It gets to the point where it realizes it can't figure it out. This was really the, the essence of the path of my teacher, Franklin Merrill Wolfe, uh, who just completely went into an intellectual approach and exhausted it to the point where his mind just couldn't think of anything anymore, and that was the moment of opportunity when he woke up. But uh, this does not mean, though, that intellectual understanding has no place on the path. It's actually very important for a lot of things. So you need, uh, you need to bring your intellect to bear when you're evaluating a teacher, for instance. Is it a good teacher, a bad teacher, a charlatan, authentic teacher? And maybe it's not even a question of good or bad. Maybe it's just, is this a teacher for you or not? Maybe it's a good teacher, but this, I'm just not clicking with this teacher. I've got to find another teacher that I do click with. But you need to think about this a little bit. A lot of people get taken in by charlatans uh, because they don't uh, use their intellect. You don't just check your intellect at the door when you walk in here. Uh, you need your intellect to decide uh, moral things. Right from wrong—it's not always easy to figure out what's right and wrong in life. You know, we, we have guidelines and stuff, but when you get down to an actual situation, uh, you know, it's not it's not easy. Uh, so, uh, <coughs> and you also need your intellect to understand instructions for practice. So if somebody's describing maybe a more complicated meditation practice with visualizations and stuff like that, in order to do it, you need to listen and understand the teaching. And if you have questions, ask the questions. That, Did you mean I should do this or that or whatever? So we do need our intellectual understanding, but not when it comes to enlightenment itself. And here's, the, uh, here's what Rumi, the great Sufi uh, mystic, Sufis are the mystics of Islam. Uh, here's what he says about this understanding is good and useful for just long enough to bring you to the king's gate once you reach his door then submit and cut yourself off from understanding for in that hour understanding is harmful a regular highwayman and this is uh, this is what happened to uh, zhuangzi he's grasping an intellectual understanding robbed him of 3 years of enlightenment you know he would uh, he would have woke up before So uh, this is just important to keep in mind. Again, when you're doing any kind of mystical practice and so forth, yes, the practice may require you thinking about things and so forth, uh, but actual enlightenment itself is not a question of someday I'm going to figure it out. I can tell you right now, you're never going to figure it out. Never, ever, ever. So one way I say, you can exhaust your mind trying, and that, that will bring you to a place where You have to surrender it, but you could save yourself some, uh, some time and effort and just realize right now, you're never going to figure this out. You got to do it. You got to do it yourself. You got to just keep doing it until you do it, until it happens. You can't get it from a book. You can't get it from me. You can't get it from even the, the, uh, most revered scriptures in the world. It's got to be your own experience. So, uh, what is this? Uh, this enlightenment, this realization, this uh, truth that mystics talk about. Well, as I said, you can't put it in words like uh, Lao Tzu said, but mystics do uh, uh, try to express some flavor of it, just to sort of point you in the right direction. And let me read you some uh, examples, some testimonies, first-hand accounts of some mystics some of different traditions. Here's uh, Shankara, an 8th century a Hindu mystic. Uh, Here's what he says. The ocean of Brahman is full of nectar. The treasure I have found there cannot be described in words. The mind cannot conceive of it. My mind fell like a hailstone into the vast expanse of Brahman's ocean. Touching one drop of it, I melted away and became one with Brahman. Now, so this is 8th century India. Now, here's the 16th century Christian mystic Teresa of Avila. She's talking about her union with the divine. She never read Shankara. She didn't, you know, uh, get any information from him or never heard of him. She says, It is like rain falling from the heavens into a river or spring. There is nothing but water there, and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which fell from the heavens. Or it is as if a tiny streamlet enters a sea, from which it will find no way of separating itself. Or as if in a room there were two large windows through which the light streamed in. It enters in different places, but it all becomes one. That's very similar, isn't it? Now, here's Cherno Bokar, 19th century a West African Sufi. Never heard of Teresa of Vila, I'm sure. And he talks about three lights corresponding to three lights in the Sufi path. And here's what he says about the third light. The third light is the the center of all existence, namely God. Who would dare to describe it? It is a darkness more brilliant than all lights combined. It is the light of truth. Those who have the good fortune to reach the degree of this light lose their identity and become like a drop of water, which has fallen into the Niger River or into a sea of infinitely vast extent and depth. So here's four different mystics from four different times, places, continents. They're all saying the same thing, aren't they? This is why we say at the center, uh, we look to the mystics of all these traditions, not to the tr- traditions themselves. We're not Buddhists, we're not Hindus, we're not Jews or Christians or Sufis or Muslims or anything. <coughs> but we look at the, the mystics, we read the mystics and say, gee, they're all talking about the same thing. And then when we <coughs> look at their practices, we see, yeah, they have quite different practices and form, but the principles of the practices are really quite the same. So that's what we do at the center. We try to adopt the principles and these practices to our modern age and try to point people towards this truth that these people have realized. They say, we can't really tell you what it is. Here's some little description of it. So uh, I thought we'd uh, now try to sit and do a little contemplative practice and see what it'd be like to get beyond our thought, ignore our thought, not try to sit here figuring enlightenment out but see, what they, what is this they're talking about, this ocean of Brahman, this light of truth? And I'm going to read you, we'll sit down here, and I'm going to ring the gong once to let us know we're uh, going, we're starting, and twice to let us know when the meditation's over. It'll be about 10 minutes. But before we actually ring the gong, I will read you four little uh, snippets of instruction, and you pick one or or, or whatever. Uh, whatever, whichever one you want to you know, try out. So you won't have to sit there absolutely doing nothing. That's a very, very high practice. I don't expect you to be at that place yet. But we get a chance to at least try out uh, an approach to it, okay? So here's the first one. Uh, and this is from a contemporary Tibetan master, Lama Gendan Rinpoche. And he writes, This perception of the essence of mind takes place when all previous thoughts have come to a stop and the next thought has not yet appeared. The mind is in the spontaneous present, its own reality. It is the mind which sees its own essence. And this is what we call primordial wisdom. So, you know, it's thoughts, you don't have to generate thoughts. They'll be rising, passing, rising, passing. If you want to generate a thought, go ahead. And just watch when that thought's gone and before the next thought comes, right there. Right there. The mind can see the essence of mind. If you want to take a more devotional approach, here's Meister Eckhart, a medieval Christian mystic. And here's what he says. He's talking about God. You should love him as he is a non-God, a non-spirit, a non-person, a non-image but as he is a pure, unmixed, bright one, separated from all duality. And in that one, we should eternally sink down out of something into nothing. So you could try that when we're sitting here. What what does it mean sink down out of something into nothing? Here's a slight variation, actually, in the same thing. This is from the 18th century Hasidic master, Menachem Nahum. Uh, The Hasidic uh, was one stream of Jewish mysticism. And here's what he says. In prayer, seek to make yourself a vessel for God's presence. How can any finite vessel hope to contain the endless God? Therefore, see yourself as nothing. Only one who is nothing can contain the fullness of the presence. Here's one of my favorites, very simple. She's a, a 20th century Dutch mystic, Eddie Hillsum, and here's what she says. Such words as God and death and suffering and eternity are best forgotten. We have to become as simple and as wordless as the growing corn or the falling rain. So, therefore, little hints, clues that you can use, and uh, pick one, and we'll sit here for about 10 minutes, and you can try it out, and then we'll have a little discussion afterwards, okay? Here we go. If
0: you would like to follow our program, pause the audio here, meditate, and then resume the audio.
1: So what was your experience? Yes.
2: I I was I was looking at this little black nubbin and I kept saying a black nubbin. <laughs> and it helped me then I could I was able to like keep saying it. I was amazed I was able to keep my concentration on that thing. I was amazed uh, that I could and the thoughts would come that then and I was also able to think I'm breathing in, I know I'm breathing in, breathing out part of the time. Yeah, anyway, it was a good experience because I'm, I'm not a great meditator at all. So it was great to feel that.
1: Great. Yeah. You might want to think about um, using a visual image in your meditation practice. You know, a lot of people will use uh, an icon or just a little picture of a, uh, a guru or, you know, anything that appeals to you. Uh, and if you, if you really want to make it more portable – Use, find something that you can look at, a little a picture, something that, you know, a candle, anything, and then practice visualizing it, closing your eyes and visualizing so you can call it to mind as a visual image any time, any place, and you'll always carry that with you, and you'll always have a little visual image to call up and, and meditate on it. It's a, it's, very, it's a very powerful practice if you can do it, if you're a good visualizer, because especially if you are, if you uh, take the effort to uh, train yourself to be able to imagine it. Then, when it starts to wobble, it, it lets you know your concentration is wobbling. So it's an immediate, like biofeedback mechanism.
2: Yeah, thank
1: you. The okay. Tibetans—it's very, it's very. The Tibetans uh, use a lot of visualization. It's very, it's very powerful. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, Laura, were you just going to say something?
0: Yeah. Well, when I was doing that, it felt like I could sink into my heart. It would be dark. And then all of a sudden I realized it was my mind that was watching, but who was watching my mind?
1: Good question.
0: So that's where I ended up.
1: Good question. Yeah, Yeah, pursue that question. Excellent question. You see, your mind's watching, but who's watching the mind? Wonderful question. Anybody else? So I really resonated
2: with... um... Is it my study card about how someone cannot contain vastness of God, so that emptiness of that, and so um I just kind of sat here, and after a while, I noticed that I was trying not trying to be nothing right right, <laughs> and so kind of struggled with that for a bit, and then and then um this then a part of me. Started to notice the trying and, and kind of soften to the trying self, you know, to the huh. separating self. And so there's just this hint of compassion and allowing and softening to that part that was trying so hard. But that's where I ended up. Wonderful. In between
1: that. Wonderful. And just, and again, this, this is the whole point. <coughs> we do these practices, the practices show us something. We think we know what we're supposed to do. We sit down and we do this practice. but if, And if you are too uh, grasping at your own intellectual understanding of the practice, you'll miss what the practice has to teach you. But if you are open to it, you see, okay, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to try to be nothing. And then, okay, you see, well, who, this, there's someone trying to be nothing. There's someone very present here that's trying not to be here. And uh, I'm making a big effort. And then you notice that. And then when you notice that, Exactly. A little compassion enters in. That poor ego that's trying so hard, and, you know, and then that relaxes. And, and the more you surrender that and let that relax, the less there will be anybody there trying. So it's a wonderful practice to follow, to recognize the efforts you're putting into whatever practice you're doing, breath or whatever, and notice that effort. And let go of the effort. That doesn't mean abandon the practice. Let go of the effort. Start to let more and more go of the effort. And you will see that the practice starts to do you. Another, We're on a Zen roll today. But another great uh, Zen saying is, you turn Dharma. That means you do the practices. You listen to the teachings. You turn the wheel of Dharma. And then Dharma turns you. And when you get into the practice and then you surrender to the practice, the practice starts to show you things starts to show you insight.
2: Yes? I really, really like Eddie Holmes. So when you called out a name, I perked up and and that particular visualization of being corn,
0: growing. Yeah. Wow. Like, you couldn't think if you tried. That's right. So I, I really resonated with that one.
1: Great, great. This is another lesson. All these teachings available, you know, uh, all us teachers give especially at this place give teachings from different teachers different traditions so forth we've got a library next door that has books from uh, all the great traditions thousands of books and stuff and so there's no lack of teachings here right here in, uh you know in this place the trick now is to find the teachings that resonate with you and that's something that you know uh, somebody could point you and say you might you like Eddie Hill you might like this and that but something only you know only you know out that you're resonating with this teaching. So one of the, that's one of our, uh, the ways we serve people here at the Center. We try to make available all these teachings from these different traditions and teachers, and uh, hopefully you will be use your intellect and your heart and go look and find what resonates with you. So uh, how many people? <laughs> nothing happened to you in this little exercise. no one had nothing happened to them. Is that, is that the case? Nothing happened to you. Okay, anybody else had nothing happened to them? Surely not. Okay, Anyway, that's basically, it was boring kind of sitting there. Something like that, no? Well, you're, you guys, are, only Gene is on the right track here, really. <laughs> if not, I'm serious about this. If nothing happened to you, do not be discouraged. That's a good sign. I'm going to read you a couple more quotes here, short ones. This is from the 14th century Christian author. He's, we don't know. is anonymous. A text is called The Cloud of Unknowing. And uh, he or she writes about contemplative practice like this. In the beginning, it is usual to feel nothing but a kind of darkness about your mind, or as it were, a cloud of unknowing. Try as you might, this darkness and this cloud will remain between you and your God. You will feel frustrated, for your mind will be unable to grasp him, and your heart will not relish the delight of his love. But learn to be at home in this darkness. So if if that description fits what was happening to you, you're on the right track. Learn to be at home in this darkness. Why? Here's a... 11th century Tibetan Yojini Machig Lobdron, and here's what she writes. Look for the essence of mind. This is meaningful. When you look at mind, there's nothing to be seen. In this very not seeing, you see the definitive meaning. So if you were following uh, the other one, looking between thoughts for essence of mind, the the Tibetan uh, uh Gandan Rinpoche's teaching, and you didn't see anything, oh, that's the right that's you're doing good. You're doing good. It's, it's in the not seeing. If you see something, you're you're on the wrong track. <laughs> if you see something, it's not it. It's the seeing no thing that's it. Here's uh the 20th century Hindu mystic, Ananda May Where nothing is there is everything. All efforts are for the sake of this realization. Where nothing is, there is everything. So if you're looking for uh, something, uh, if you find something, that ain't it. Guaranteed. I- Ibn Arabi, another Sufi, has uh, a whole work uh, uh, we have in the uh, in the center library called uh, I think well, there's different titles to so what. Journey to the Lord of Power? Yes. Uh, it's not easy to read, I'll warn you. It's full of Sufi illusions and symbolism and imagery and stuff like that. But one of the things he says is this is going on a uh, typical uh, Islamic 40-day retreat. When, bef- right, when you enter retreat, you make a covenant with God. And that uh, you settle for nothing but God. And all these things are going to happen to you on the retreat. Good things, bad things, all kinds of things. And whatever presents itself to you and says, I am God, you say, no, you are through God, but you are not God. And don't stop with anything. Just keep going. So it's great advice for a retreat. It's great advice for your spiritual practice. These kinds of practices, contemplative practices, maybe you won't feel nothing. Maybe you'll uh, feel... uh, uh, bliss and ecstasy and you'll have wonderful cosmic experiences and so forth, that's great. That's, that's a good carrot. Keeps you going, you know. It, it, it introduces you to a, a, a kind of joy that you never even knew existed. It's wonderful. But don't stop with that. Don't settle for that. Don't say, ah, now here I am. How can I, how can I stay in this cloud of bliss? No, you want to stay in the cloud of unknowing, the cloud of no thing. That's where you need to be at home. So, uh, <clears throat> let me end this with a little Sufi story about Rabia. She was a ninth century early Sufi, great Sufi. And she was, uh, she's uh, from uh, Basra. And, you know, uh, it was a hot summer night in Basra in the eighth century. They didn't have air conditioning, so everybody goes up on their roofs and hangs out on the roofs. And, um, uh, She's up on a roof with everybody else in town. And next door, on the next roof over, there's this uh, guy praying. And he says, oh, Lord, open the door that I may come to you. Oh, Lord, open the door that I may come to you. Oh, Lord, open the door that I may come to you. He's really devout. and He's praying. He's going on and on. And Rabia's sitting there. Finally, she leans over and she yells, oh, idiot, the door's not shut. (laughs) Or if we want to translate it into Zen terms, the fire god is already here. <laughs> Same teaching. Anyway, that's the formal teaching for our Light of Truth Day today. And uh, if there are any f- follow-up questions, uh, we have a little bit more time.
0: Yeah? I do kind of have a question about this nothing that you're talking about. I was gardening, and I was, like, working pretty hard, so my heart was beating really hard. Mm. So I had to stop. And when I stopped, um, I could feel my heart beating, and the attention kind of went further in than the heart that was beating. And there was just this, uh, what I call benevolence, uh, kind of a divine uh, benevolence, uh, kind of just emanating um, from within, I guess. Right. Um, and you talked about it, it being nothing, but it's, it, um, I guess I wanted to talk about consciousness like with um, having qualities like benevolence or love or, um, I don't know.
1: It does, it does. But, but still, that's an expression of that manifest benevolence that manifest love that you actually feel is a an expression of that consciousness which is inherently benevolent and so it's uh it's a sign it's like following a scent of a, an animal you know you're, you uh, as you get closer the scent gets stronger and you say oh i'm really on the right track here because this is you know pure benevolence pure love and so forth but that will pass like is it you still feel it
0: I, I do experience that but it, at different moments when I kind of tune in.
1: Here. Right, yeah. right. So it comes and goes, the experience. So the, Ibn Arabi say, this is wonderful. Say, this is great. You are through God, but you are not God. But follow that. Learn to be at home with that. Stay with that without grasping, and without pushing away. That's the key. If we grasp at it, and think, oh, this is so sweet, this is so wonderful, I'd I'd love to really hang on to this, then that's ego coming in, and grasping, and trying to make it into something for itself, and that's actually hiding it, in a way. So, this this is a really, you know, it's actually, in a certain sense, it's worse to have wonderful spiritual experiences on a spiritual path than to have bad ones, or none, because you get attached to them. You can get attached to them. And then, you get, um, you know, you keep getting sidetracked. So uh, by all means, you know, when it comes, don't, don't push it away. It's not about rejecting. It's just about, uh, accepting and, you know, and gratitude would probably be the best attitude towards it, if you want to say that. It comes and it's, it's gratitude. Thank you. But if it goes, it goes. It's grace. So it's not up to you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Sherry.
2: I have a question from um, Shinsen Young. Um, you know where he talks about focusing your attention on the point right between expansion and contraction. Is he talking about something in addition to the breath? Does he never mention the breath?
0: Well, I've been reading Shenzhenya quite a bit right. and doing retreats with him on the phone. So, yes, um, I think he is talking about more than the breath. I think he's saying that every phenomenon, and every experience, if we look at it really deeply, we'll find. So, was that what you meant? Was it only that or was there something yeah. else? Yeah.
1: Okay, I'll give you another version of that uh, from I want to say Gershom, but it wasn't. Something Ben Sholem from Barcelona, uh, medieval uh, Kabbalist. And he says that uh, God's nothingness, uh, Ein Sof, uh, appears, is revealed through every transformation of experience. Every time something transforms from one thing into another, there's for a moment there, God's Ein Sof is visible. Visible not meaning, you know, to the eye, and it's the exact same teaching, and that's the same teaching about watching between thoughts, or watching between breaths, or any kind of thing, it's the exact same teaching, so whenever, some, or watching between, when there's presence of, uh, you know, benevolence and bliss, and then it goes away, or maybe it turns into darkness and, and despair, okay, there's a moment of passing through nothing. So I think it's the same teaching. So I think it, it, the trick, though, is I think it, it's to find things that are obvious to you where there's some expansion turns into contraction or something is present and then absent or whatever. Because just to say it in general, there's, you know, there's too much. A <laughs> cup runneth over. Everything's doing this all the time, right? So we need to find in our own experience what we can look at and, and observe closely. Ah, there it is. And without distraction.
0: Yeah, so in,
2: in meditation, I find it easiest to use the breath. And I know there are a couple of Korean teachers who have said that moment when it turns around is a really precious moment. But if I keep practicing there, I'm expecting I'll begin
0: to see it with thoughts.
1: Once you can see it between the breath, you, I, chances are you're going to become more sensitive to it in other places, which is great. You see it all over the place. The same uh, uh, teaching in uh, uh, this uh, tantric text, which I can't tell you the uh, Sanskrit name, but it's it's translated in the back of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind as centering. And uh, Shakti is asking Shiva for teachings, and where does reality appear? And he says, "Oh, darling." Watch between the moment of the breath. When the in-breath turns into the out-breath, or the out-breath turns into the in-breath, their being is revealed, or you know however how he puts it in that particular verse. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's all around us. This, this is the whole point. It's, uh, our problem is we, we're so distracted that we can't settle down and just see one. One complete turnaround. And then the other thing is, you see, when we see the turnaround... Everybody, do it. Just just let your breath turn around. So it's happening all the time. And what's, what's the big deal? There's nothing there, is there? There's nothing there. Where nothing is, there is everything. All our practice is this for the sake of this realization, as Anandamoyama says. It seems to me enlightenment is a, I try to say probably most people, is, is a fleeting state. You become enlightened, and then life comes along and smacks you up against the side of the Ah, oh, your wife wrecked your car. Mm. You know? I know that there are people who have a, what I call a Gnostic flash or a Gnostic episode, Well, you actually do see authentically through, you see the truth, and it's often described in traditions, like you see the sun, the sun's, usually the clouds cover the sun, and suddenly the the clouds part, and you see the sun, and then the clouds come over again. And, okay, that's fine, there are different ways to deal with that, there are post-enlightenment kinds of practices you can do, and whatever, Uh, but one thing happens, if you've actually seen the sun, and not just had some high experience then you know, uh, you know where the gate is, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? You're never going to be fooled again. So you make a very good teacher for other people because if they start getting interested in paranormal powers or something like that, you can say, no, that's not where it is. So, uh, you know, it's very, I'm not poo-pooing at all, but that does happen. Uh, sometimes I think uh, people talk themselves out of enlightenment uh, because they don't, they don't trust the no self. They, 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 we've spent all our lives, you know, conditioned to have a self to run our lives. And it's, it can be scary not having a self to run your life. So I, I never got enlightened. I, I, another way to put this, I never got enlightened. I gave up trying to get enlightened. I gave up completely. I gave up trying to be happy. I gave up trying to do anything. And instead of dropping dead, <laughs> I thought this, I'm happy. <laughs> it's much more happy living without trying to do all this stuff. Wow. And you know what? If I didn't have any words for it, I wouldn't even know what to, I wouldn't go around saying I'm enlightened. That's just words, you know what I mean? I, I'll tell you one story, a quick story. It was um, a show I saw this years and years ago, an interview with some famous classical musician. Uh, i don't know as a violinist or something and this was i mean this is interview 30 years ago i saw on television and uh he was european and he told he told uh, some in the interview the interviewer asked him he says you have this reputation of being always happy and nothing seems to bother you and you just enjoy life all the time and so forth and he says yeah he said you know when i was a young man uh i was madly in love with this girl and uh I I courted her, and she, you know, she was going to marry me, and then she turned me down and married somebody else. And I thought, well, my life's over. So I checked into a hotel, and I got a rope, and I tiled it to the chandelier, and I put it around my neck, and I stood on a chair, and I kicked the chair out, and the chandelier broke. (laughs) And he said, ever since that moment, I've been happy. (laughs) And I think he was enlightened. (laughs) I think that's what happened to him. I really do. He didn't have any words for it or anything. And he expressed everything through music. That was his, you know, his way of uh, relating to the world. He didn't go around giving teachings, but he played beautiful music for people, and, uh, which is maybe even better, actually. If I could play music, I might not be a verbal teacher. You know, I, uh, I want to share something I kind of came
2: across. Roger Castello. What he was saying is that uh, when you find yourself, when you realize that your thought is going like you go on a trip, or thought after thought after thought, and then you realize that you are taken, and he said at that moment, "I am" should arise. Should arise. Okay. It's basically, I, I have tried it, and it's this is nothing.
1: Nothing happens yeah, Good, stay with like... that nothing <laughs> stay with no i'm serious i't I know uh, i don 't know what the guy's talking about, and so I can't comment on him, but if you're trying a practice and somebody that you trust has has you know indicated this is what to look for, and you find nothing if it 's an authentic teaching that's where it's supposed to be taking you to so uh, if the I am is is an expression of ultimate reality, it's going to look like nothing. As long as you're looking for something, when you stop looking for something, but you're still you're still you're not distracted by more thoughts, then it reveals what it is. Well, keep keep with it and see what happens if it's working for you. All right, yeah. Oh, one last one. Go ahead.
2: You know, you you, you give me the idea. So, like, when I was doing that thing, it was very helpful for me. So, I kept saying, black nubbin, black nubbin, black nubbin. I mean, so, when I... I'm going to have, like, something more beautiful, you know. But should I just keep saying it in my mind, like, a thought like that, or...
1: Well, it's it. It's like a mantra. Black number, black number, black it was, it was, it was but then I could <laughs> see it also,
2: which was helpful.
1: <laughs> that, that, that's fine. Okay, that's fine.
2: Just like so. so when I'm going to try this, I'm going to just like a, a little pink heart or or stone or something, and I'm just going to say that
1: whatever works to to get your mind focused and not be distracted. Yeah. Okay. There, there was a famous story about uh, Shanti Devi, I believe, an uh, old uh, Tibetan master. Actually, he was Indian before he went to Tibet, but. Uh, and he, he was uh, having trouble finding a, an object to meditate on you know they recommended the breath they rec- recommended visualizations all that stuff he couldn't focus on all these traditional objects and he finally found the horn of a yak detached from the yak but a horn and he could focus on that so that became his meditation object so uh, if you've got a black nubbin black nubbin and it works <laughs> more power to you <laughs> And and I would uh, do. We have any extra black nubbins, Mike? (laughs) We do. We give her a black nubbin today. Don't look for something beautiful. Why don't don't dress it up? That's beautiful. The black nubbin is. You will not find anything more beautiful in the world than a black nubbin.
2: So true. I could actually
1: concentrate on it. Yes. He's going to give you a black nubbin. Oh, good. And we got this recorded. <laughs> this is a first in history. I'll bet no one else has ever used a black nubbin. I'm so pleased. This will go... Hey! You'll be as famous as Shanti Devi with his horn of a yak. It'll be passed down for thousands of years.
2: <laughs> so great. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. All right. On that profound note, <laughs> until uh, we see you next time, which is not going to be really until the fall, peace to you all.